Scandal Seguani, bonjour, kwe kwe, etansi, and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Moment of Truth and Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, and of course, anywhere across Canada by downloading the Radio Canada app. Our guest by phone today is Paula Jean Perdat, and she is an actor, actress, however you would like to say that, whatever might be politically correct these days. And she is actually uh, starting in a performance that is coming up at the Factory and Obsidian Theatre. And the the play is called Angelique. And actually, um, PJ, as she likes to be called, is uh, playing the part of Menon, and she is an enslaved Indigenous woman and the neighbour of J- Angelique. And it's a pleasure to have you on the show today with us, uh, PJ. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. I'm. It's a pleasure for me as well. You know, um, as an Indigenous uh, actor, actress, um, uh, you uh, you have uh, some some very interesting uh, uh, background that is mixed in there from Cree, Soto, Scandinavian, French, and Métis. Uh, that's quite a, quite a, a a bit to to pull on as you as you bring that right. into bring your characters to life. Yeah, I guess it is. It's um, I mean, I identify primarily as Métis, but I I do have all of those uh, roots that go back um, many many generations. Um, yeah, and I think yeah, there's a lot there's a lot to um, to look at ancestrally on this land and historically in in the context of the play Angelique. Yeah, now it's not only Angelique uh, that you're you're doing. You you're also a playwright, a poet, and a writer of stories. And um, from you know you've also performed and and been a playwright with uh, the Native Earth Performing Arts in 2014, as well as the Factory Theater. NRCG's writer unit in 2015, and also a recipient of the Shaw Festival's 2017 Christopher Newton Award for playwriting. Congratulations! Oh, thank you. Yeah, the, I I feel that there's a lot. There's a real, um, like many of us um, Indigenous artists, there's a real urgency and a desire to share our stories, um, especially in these days when when things are getting quite political and. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of reason for us to 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 share and and move forward and and express ourselves in that way. You know, you used a word there that I want to I want to extract and and sort of dive deeper into. You said urgency, and it's a good word to use, I think, in these days and and these troubling times that we are facing. But that urgency. You know, as soon as you said that, what I what I saw was an and someone like yourself uh, delving into a character or trying to uh, share and make sure that you you could represent that character that you're representing, if it's an indigenous one, as best as possible. And also, as someone who is a representative, as you travel in this country and around the world, you you're you know by virtue of the line of work that you are in, you are already. Um, uh, sort of a representative or someone that is out there that people look to as an indigenous voice, you might say. Yeah, I guess I do believe, I really do think that there is an urgency, um, especially of late, to to find our own ways of, of um, creating and extrapolating and, and expressing ourselves. And, and there's so many amazing artists across across um, what is now Canada and, and the U.S., but then also internationally. So yeah, there's there's a real uh, effort and, and art being produced by Indigenous people. 
can I ask how long you've been working in this field? And, and what started first for you, the acting, the playwriting, writing poetry or stories? What, how did it start for you? Wow. Um, I think I, I've always been, uh, well, my mother actually is, um, her name is Shirley, Shirley Morasti. And uh, she, she's, always been, she's always been my storyteller. So even as a very small child, she taught me to speak um, words, <laughs> you know. Mm. And uh, so she, she's always told me stories, even, you know, at bedtime. Or, um, it was always my mom that, um, that would put me to sleep with, with certain stories that mm. were dear to her. And, um, and I really do believe that that affected me. She's, she's also someone who, like, that really enjoys um, she's the best jokester, like the best joke teller I've ever heard. <laughs> she's mm. just, that's her. That's her real joy. Is you know, she just caught me on April Fools, and so actually, almost she almost got me, but I was I was a little bit more prepared this time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I would say it started with my mother, and and I I like to believe it started with hers and and her mother's mother as well. You know, going back, and I think that that um, there's a real um the value in in sharing stories and and uh you know adventure in in imagination um and so i think i think as a small kid i i really i loved books i loved reading i like i loved all of that because my mother really taught me that and music and um and so uh i grew up actually in a quite a sports town um which is great and definitely there's um you know, real value in that, but I, I always, I always felt more of a pull towards the arts, um, or you know, storytelling itself. So different mediums of storytelling, because I didn't have, we didn't grow up with theater where where I grew up in a very small little tiny community in Saskatchewan. Mm. Um, but, was that uh, was that Meadow? Always, was that Meadow Lake? Is that? Yeah, I grew up in Meadow Lake. I, I was born there, mm. um, and then we, I traveled a lot um, with my my parents at different times. Um, so we we lived in different communities throughout the province, really. Um, but the majority of the places that I lived were, were too small to have an arts community. Um, so I just, I guess I watched, you know, I watched, watched a lot of movies. And my mother, too, um, she didn't have a lot growing up, but her, her father loved taking uh, my mom and her siblings to the theater and so to the cinema, and so they would go and watch movies every weekend, you know. He'd, he'd make a few bucks here and there, and, and they he would be he'd save his money, but it was a huge treat for them to to go. And I think somehow that that um, that love for storytelling has mm. been passed on in that way. Mm. Um, but yeah, I guess I've always loved it, and I even um, I, a big desire that I had in in my early twenties was to come to Toronto and work for Native Earth. But there was a part of me that didn't know if if that would ever be possible. So my very first show ended up being, in fact. Um, at Native Earth Performing Arts, um, a beautiful show uh, called A Very Polite Genocide. And, mm. um, yeah, <laughs> it was a political and beautiful, beautifully written piece. Mm. Um, yeah, so I, I, it's, all, it's been a constant searching and learning and growing and, and moving in that way. Yeah, so, so there's a couple of things that jump out at me there I want to I come back to. First of all, you mentioned your mom's name, Marasti. Is, is that, so are you, are you related to the, the actor, Marasti? Well, actually, my mother's that um, my mother—that's my mother's uh, married name. Okay. But interestingly, I don't know. He and I need to have a talk, Billy Morassi. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, only because I've heard through another um, very reliable source um, who also has a fascination, like I do, with um, ancestry and, and names, 
told me that that one of his relatives and I and my ancestors share another name. Mm. Um, so yes, I'm going to ask him about this because I I feel like we're all cousins somewhere along the line. You know, if we're coming from because he's from Manitoba and I have ancestors that come from the same mm. um, only back um, two generations um, back that mm. go to the same communities. I think that, that that Billy is from. But anyway, I have to ask him about that before I okay. Well, from well, <laughs> you, you you just mentioned something else. I wanted to uh, jump to you. We said cousins, and I see that uh, you you played uh, a role in Almighty Voice and his wife, which uh, yeah. which is uh, uh, Daniel David Moses, who happens to be my cousin. So um, amazing! <laughs> I wondered about that. Yeah, so, <laughs> so it is a small world. Um, That's one of my absolute favorite pieces, by the way. Yeah. I, that was that was one of the most grueling and life-altering experiences. But I love I love hearing about my own ancestor stories and and making those connections, as you just mentioned, with with you know other cousins or other other people. I, I'm I'm always fascinated to know how how we um, merge and intertwine and and speak to something greater. Well, that's interesting. I want to, it leads me to another question. When you are researching this, and, and of course a lot of the, the kind of writing, obviously, that you're doing, if it's based on history and researching history to, to look at what has happened or to these characters or to these people in, uh, if they're indigenous, then how difficult is that, do you find, when you research these to get beyond the... Because there's usually pain involved with these stories. Uh, how, do you, how do you find... How difficult is it for you to reach beyond that to bring these, this, this story to uh, a new level outside of, of where it has come from out of the past and, and bring these characters uh, into life? Well, I guess that's a really interesting question. Um, the character that I'm playing currently, uh, Manon, it was um, her character in the play is based on the testimony of a real young woman who was a slave in Montreal in 1734. And she did give um, damning testimony against Angelique. So Angelique, um, just so that uh, those listening know, uh, maybe you've already said it, but she she was um, an African-descendant slave who was accused of burning down the city. Mm-hmm. And... And um, my character, uh, the way that uh, the playwright Lorna Gale has created her is that she has her reasons for um, for ending their their friendship. Um, and so it, it, it's um, it's really interesting to me to to uncover or to to look into this part of you know the so-called Canadian <laughs> experience because um, I believe that that um, we had to. We ha- there's so much that has brought us to this place, and I feel as though there's a lot that hasn't been looked at. We, you know, I was never taught that uh, Indigenous people were enslaved, and and um, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands even taken in Europe, you know, mm. and left there. Like there, there's there's so much of our history that that um, I'm not sure why, but it's only. It's only come to light, I think, in the in the last number of years, where there are historians researching these um, documents, like um, the testimony, for example, in in uh, New France. Um, it's all records through the church system or the um, judicial system, and and those things exist. They're real. They're there. You there are um, these amazing 
uh, historians that have gone and documented and 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 found references to uh, different indigenous slave stories and um, it can be really enraging or really upsetting to go wow this person uh, for example, there was a, a young woman who um, met. It happened very often, but there were there were slaves that were brought all the way out from the west um, and taken into Montreal and um, were accused of certain crimes and then also shipped down into the Caribbean. Like that's, that's actually a, a historical. Um, there's proof of that happening because of of these testimonies and and trials that happened. Um, and that's something that we don't we don't talk about. Like how how um, Slavery has impacted Indigenous communities, mm. and there's been so much of that. I feel like we we um, like it's brushed over or um, not looked at. And and for me, that's a really fascinating part of history that that needs to be uh, explored and <laughs> you know, exam- like you know, examined. Um, but I hear what you're saying about it. You know, it can be it can be hard, and I think that's the that's the grit that's also interesting to me as a performer, as a writer, as a poet is. I, uh, you know, I wouldn't change anything about my own past as much as, you know, there's been certain things that I definitely, you know, can look at with regret or, you know, look at with, oh, that's too bad that that happened. But I also feel um, on some level there are certain stories that, that make a person unique and 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 also give voice to those situations that, you know, we might not necessarily know. And, and I think those things are... are really important. It's an interesting story that you are involved with, uh, PJ, and um, it sounds like a very interesting role that you you have been given here. You actually gave evidence uh, against Angelique in this performance? Yeah, there are definitely people who who, um, give testimony that that um, goes against her, including a four-year-old child. Mm. <laughs> so I'm not entirely sure, but how, how um, you know, um, yeah, spot on the <laughs> the the testimonies were. But uh, yeah, that's what happened. Several people gave testimonies against her, and and uh, yeah, she was uh, severely uh, well tortured and and uh, executed for it. And, and so, as a character uh, in this play, um, and uh, looking at um, uh, slavery and indigenous people, uh, you see, I'm sure you've come across similarities that you see within uh, the indigenous and black enslavement uh, or communities as you as you explore this. Yeah, it's. I mean, I guess the thing is that what's really, um, I think, quite profound about the piece is that it comments on on in a very subtle way about how. Uh, through costume um, changes and through um, certain text, uh, that uh, enslavement is still an ongoing uh, issue, and mm. and uh, so it flips from it it, it switches in costuming uh, for those who are enslaved into uh, still a, a version of um, you know enslavement that's a bit more modern. Um, so it, there there's definitely there's a real uh, intrigue that I do have about about these relationships, especially because um, well, through through so much of, of um, the Underground Railroad and and through um, the the breakage of enslavement um, in the states, um, which you know Canada Canada's still pretty quiet about talking about all of those things, um, 
but um, First Nations and, and African descended peoples had a lot of uh, ties together. And mm. so that's what's really interesting to me because I don't believe that there's been a lot of, um, I don't, I mean, maybe I'm wrong and someone can correct me. I would love to hear from them <laughs> if so. But I feel as though there hasn't been a whole lot uh, written about about those stories between, mm. um, you know, First Nations and, and African descended peoples who were enslaved. But that mm. that is, it's so, it's, it's so complex and it's so, um, it's so historically, um, you know, complicated and, and yet, um, there must there must be a lot that that can be um, spoken about with it. You know, I'm sure I'm sure that there is a way to find out more. Uh, what would you like to share with us? You, you kind of hinted at this uh, about the performance. Uh, in case people are interested in going down to see it, um, it you made it sound like there was a, a change of adaptation within this at some point to make it more modern, to make it bring it up to current times, so that it it gives some relevance to today. Is that what I heard you say? Well, um, not exactly, actually. Okay. It still sits in. Um, it still sits in 1734. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do believe that it is. It's a. It's a beautiful piece. Um, it, it. You know what is so amazing about it, in my opinion, is that there is a real humanity. I feel that um, Lorena Gale has written very complex characters, and, and mm-hmm. several of them are based on on uh, real people, mm-hmm. um, and. I think I think subtly what what I was mentioning before is just that it is interesting to see um, if you look close enough you can see, you can see the references to how in people being enslaved at the, in that era is still is still uh, something that is resonating mm. centuries later and I I really fully believe that to my core that that um, we are we are um, a direct uh, well, all of that history is still is still um, a reflection of, of where um, this nation, <laughs> this nation in Canada is, you know, mm. and then how complicated it is for First Nations and and Métis people and African descended peoples. It's it's a very um, the way that the play addresses it is is um, marked, and you know, there's joy in it. There's there's a lot of um, there's romance in it, and mm. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of love in it, and and yet it is it's fiery, <laughs> and it's, um, it's poetical, and and uh, yeah, that the artists involved are all you know giving so much of themselves. It's it's a big story, and and there's a lot um, of power I think that's that's um, within it. So, uh, what else can you can you tell us about this uh, to entice people to come down and see it? Well, we just um, we just actually had uh, our premiere um, opener at the National Arts Center mm. um, to some amazing amazing uh, houses, and um, yeah, there's there's a real I I believe that this play with all of its beautiful poetry and and uh, you know strong 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 storytellers um, there's a real part of our history that that is being spoken to here that that isn't um like anything else and mm. so i would i would definitely um i would definitely hope that people come out and check it out because um it's rare it's it's um it's amazing it's a really beautiful piece and i'm 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 speaking quite honestly about that i'm, I'm really mm. i feel really uh fortunate to be a part of it because it's, it's pretty 
pretty spectacular. We have been speaking with Paula Jean, or PJ Perdat, as she likes to be called, and she is in the performance of Angelique. It is uh, the Factory and Obsidian Theatre, and uh, that's going to be on until the 21st. So if you're interested, get down there and see it. It does sound like a very interesting uh, performance. Uh, PJ, thanks for taking the time. Any last words before we go? Oh, I just, I, um, thank you for having me. Hi, hi. It's such a pleasure to be on mm. and uh, to speak about it. So I really appreciate, appreciate you taking the time also to, to connect with me. Well, thanks once again, um, uh, Chimigwech and Nyawa, for taking your time. We appreciate it. And we look forward to hearing from you again in the future. And all the best Bye. with your work in the future as well. <laughs> Thank you. You too. Right. Bye-bye. Bye. And welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and of course, anywhere across Canada by downloading the Radio Player Canada app and just typing in 106.5 ELMNT or 95.7 ELMNT and listening on your device anywhere you would like across Canada. And in the studio, we have uh, someone that I've known for a while and also someone whose name uh, might be on the side of some buildings or at least on the construction sites that you might be seeing going up. Brian Porter is an architect, and he is the principal at Two Row Architect, and that is based on Six Nations. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks, uh, D- David. It's, it's great to come and, uh, come and finally see you. I know we talked about this for a bit, and it's, it's, I'm, I'm really feel privileged to have a chance to come and sit and talk with you. Well, it's great that you're able to come in here, you know, because it isn't every day that we get a chance to speak with an architect. Tell, tell us how long you've been doing this, by the way. Um, well, I graduated from the University of Toronto in 1987. And when you, when you graduate, back then, uh, it was a five-year program. And to become a licensed architect, you had to apprentice for anywhere from three to five years. And uh, in that window between th- three and five years, you also had to write a set of uh, provincial examinations. It took about a week. Mm. So after I graduated, I went and got a position at uh, the Regional Office of Indian Affairs on 25 St. Clair Avenue uh, as a project architect there. And I was mostly working as a spy, right? I mean, it was, I thought that, you know, if I, at the time, they were responsible for delivering quite a few of the buildings that were being designed for First Nation communities in Ontario. Okay. So I went there really to kind of kind of see what rules uh, they were um, implementing and how consult- consultants needed to follow them. So it was a really good learning experience, but a year was probably enough to kind of gain the knowledge that I needed to. After that, I spent a year at the uh, Ontario Regional Office of Public Works Canada up at 4900 Young Street. And they were also uh, responsible for providing services to some of the different uh, federal agencies like Parks Canada, National Defense, and they did a lot of work for Health Canada. So at the time, any health clinic that was being built on a First Nations community, it was actually being designed and uh, construction managed from that office. So I spent a a year there, uh, again as a spy. And then after that, I I really wanted to get into the, the... uh, private sector. So I managed to get a, a placement with a firm that had an office in Toronto, but their head office was in Brantford, which was mm. close to Six Nations, my home. So taking that position got me a chance to kind of transition from Toronto to get back home to the reserve. 
So I worked there for about three years, got the experience that I needed to write my license exams, which I passed, I think it was 1992. Uh, so it was that, at that point that I was a, became a registered architect and was able to start a practice. I initially started Turo Architect as a partnership of individuals. Mm-hmm. I had 55% of the company and then the five partners of the firm that I was working for in Bradford, each of those five partners had 9%, so they accrued to 45%. I had the majority at 55, but we shared resources a little bit, and I was also kind of able to build up their uh, First Nations portfolio of work while I was there. We were fortunate enough to get some schoolwork at Six Nations and some other communities. And then after we worked as a partnership for about a year and a half, I ended up buying them out, and I uh, converted to a sole proprietorship. Uh, so I've been operating that way since 1993. Mm. So I guess, how many years is that? That's like 25 and mm. 26 years yeah, we've, been, like that, yeah. we've been at this. Congratulations. That's great. Yeah. So uh, as you as you then got out on your own, and you're starting to look for jobs and, and uh, of course, create <clears throat> a portfolio for yourself, how do you how do you start that? I mean, how do you, what do you look at? What where do you look yeah. to start your yourself off? I was lucky at the time. Um, there was a lot of I call it reverse discrimination going on at the time. So I had you know coming from Six Nations, being a resident there, I was it was really one of the only indigenous owned firms in Canada at the time. Uh, mm. There was only a handful. You know, Douglas Cardinal was practicing, of course, but I don't think there were very many firms that were really, you know, could kind of make that claim. So blood got me into a lot of doors. Mm. I was able to get invited to a lot of projects. It didn't necessarily win me the commissions, but it got me, usually got me to a shortlisted stage where I could get to an interview. Mm. Uh, So for the first 10 years, I would think probably 80, 90% of the work that we did was for Indigenous groups on reserve, predominantly in Ontario. So if there's, you know, if there's 132 communities, we've had the privilege of being contracted directly by probably 50 or 60 of those individual communities. The vast majority of those that are south of Perry Sound we've worked for. There might be just a handful that we haven't. And we've also got experience in the north. We've worked in places like you know, Moose Factory uh, with the Moose Cree Nation. We've worked uh, on Pekanjikum, Wasuskonigum near the um, Ontario-Winnipeg border. Um, so really feel privileged to have had a chance to work with them. But it, it was really just we got started, got a few projects completed, and just sort of built up our portfolio from there. What kind of projects does an architect take on when I think of an architect, I usually think of buildings, but it wouldn't necessarily be a building. It might be something interior as well that you might work on. Is that right? Yeah, we've done a lot of renovations, um, but if you if if the, the the profession's regulated, and if you look at the Ontario Building Code, what it says in there is that it says that any kind of building over six thousand square feet. I'm still a I'm still an imperial guy, uh, so mm-hmm. just 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 under six hundred square meters. In, in today's terms, you have to get an architect involved if you're doing a mainstream project mm. or if there's an assembly occupancy, say over 30 people in a space, then that triggers the requirement for an architect. Um, it's not 
as regulated in First Nations communities. You know, they, they were really operating there kind of under the absence of any kind of regulatory framework. But I think some of those principles still kind of hold true where, you know, when you get into assembly occupancies, when you get into these larger structures, typically, you know, if it's federally funded or provincially funded, they'll want to see a, li- a licensed architect get involved. Uh, so that means we are doing things like health centers, schools, daycares, multi-unit housing, uh, recreation buildings. Uh, that's the type of work that we sort of built up our uh, our firm on. Hmm. Now, the, your name, Two Row Architect, certainly uh, is an interesting name. It's a simple name, but for me brings uh, a very simple architectural design to mind as well because of that. Yeah. Kind of interesting when I when we started in 1992, the Ontario Association of Architects had just kind of deregulated the way that you could name your your firm if you were starting a practice. Oh yeah. In the old days, back in the 80s and before, if you started an architecture firm, you had to have the last names of the principals oh. as part of, oh. of the title. But they deregulated that. I think it was right around 1990. And that's when you started to see firms with names like Quadrangle and mm. Two by Four <laughs> and uh, um, some of these different mm. kinds of names. So when I started to think about what I wanted to do, I didn't want to do Brian Porter Architect. Mm. So I was looking for something that, that might kind of resonate with, um, with the Indigenous community. Mm-hmm. And I also had these five partners that, that had 45% of the company. So, you know, we looked at a few things. Initially, we looked at translating maybe, um, mm. you know, an Oneida word or a Kuga sure. word for mm. house or build. But then we sort of, we, 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 we got really uh, excited about the Turo Wampum and mm. uh, the message that it conveys. Um, for those people that don't know it, it's, it's a wampum belt. It's long. It's a white background. And it's got two parallel rows of purple beads that run its entire length. So graphically, it's pretty simple, but it's intended to symbolize two vessels kind of sharing the same stream, a canoe on one side, a a boat on the other. And they never interfere with each other. They're allowed to go at the same speed, but there's also an acknowledgement that they're sharing the same resources. So we thought that that was kind of fitting and... uh, I remember I was a little bit nervous about it when we first kind of came up with the idea, but I ended up uh, talking to a few of the um, traditional faith keepers at Six Nations. Mm. I went to see uh, Reg Henry, who I respected. Mm. Arnie General was a a Confederacy chief at the time, a Pete's guy. Mm. And we just sort of like um, introduced the idea about whether they thought it would be appropriate or not to kind of take this this name and mm. attach it to an architecture firm. So they were all they were all supportive, encouraged us, so we we adopted the name and and to me that's that's a concept and an idea that's kind of recognizable mm-hmm. probably from Windsor to Montreal, mm-hmm. the whole that whole corridor. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's worked pretty well for us. Yeah. It's great. Now, uh you know, uh just recently, within the last well, since we've been actually broadcasting I've noticed that I, I've seen your name just down the street here on something that's going up. It looks like a fairly big project that, that is, is being constructed over there. Yeah, we got brought in to, to provide some guidance to a new structure that's being built for Anishinaabe Health of Toronto. Mm-hmm. It's 
It's right up on the corner of where the uh, Pan Am Games Village was. Mm. So they they secured that block a few years ago, and um, there was a there was a mainstream firm was working on it, Stantec, and we were asked by um, the executive director Joe Hester to come in and uh, work with that firm to try to really find ways to appropriately incorporate an indigenous culture into that facility. They had done a really good job of taking, you know, of, of uh, developing a functional program and, uh, you know, laying out the spaces on the different floor levels. So we, we were brought in. We, we kind of helped put together more of a story about the natural history of the area. Mm. We talked a lot about, um, you know, the different groups that have occupied Greater Toronto over the centuries. Mm whether it's the Haudenosaunee or the uh, Huron-Wendat mm. or the uh, Mississaugas of the New Credit. Um, so we were able to kind of bring part of that story and start to find ways to embellish the building and to really make it kind of reflective of, you know, those host First Nations and do it in a way that was still kind of cost-effective and, mm-hmm. it's, it's you know, it still needed to align with... Uh, all of the the hoops that the Ministry of Health makes you jump through. Mm. But it's been a real uh, rewarding experience to sit with the elders, to listen to their ideas, and to try to find ways to, you know, incorporate some of the themes in a, in a contemporary building. Now, that's interesting what you just said about bringing in the elders, getting feedback, and working in, in a physical structure that also has to answer to the regulations. How how much of a process is that, and and how much time or effort might we say does that add to just the regular construction of a building? How does it does it change much in terms of that process? Yeah, in our in in our our different years of experience, I've seen you know that community consultation process. Sometimes it's something that can be that can be done fairly quickly and in a fair, fairly straightforward way. There's other times where it really can take weeks or months or even years to really kind of work with the community, try to capture the community voice, understand uh, what their value system is, and really try to find ways to, you know, up, up, you know, incorporate it in a way that's appropriate, you know, that fits with the culture, that speaks to the individual community sometimes. It's a little bit tricky in Toronto because Toronto, to my mind, really is kind of a crossroads um, for the indigenous community of North America. You know, you've got um, you've got Inuit here, you've got Métis, you've got First Nations. Those communities, they really want to see a part of themselves in the building. I, th- I mean, I think it's always important to uh, recognize the host First Nations in a special way. Mm. But you also have, kind of have to deal with... Uh, deal with the fact that, you know, you are trying to capture values that are important to all those different groups. What about working with a non-Indigenous organization that wants to recognize those things or or wants to bring elements in? Um, how does that, uh, how do you approach that kind of a project? Well, our, our preference is always, you know, we, we, we always try to, you know, drive through the mantra of for us, by us. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also part of uh, the Indigenous Task Force that was formed by the uh, Royal Architectural Institute of Canada. Mm. We've only been in formation for a couple of years. There are about 20 of us that that are a part of that. 
the majority are um, graduate architects. Some are licensed and are practicing conventionally. Others are more involved with academia. You know, there are quite a few that are involved with the School of Architecture at Laurentian uh, University in, in Sudbury. But we're, so we're trying to promote that. We're trying to promote a for us, by us kind of means to incorporate that. And it, it's, it's a little bit frustrating sometimes because it, it's not really the way you're taught as an architect. The way the schools are currently set up, you know, you're taught for your, your projects that, you know, you're given an assignment. You know, you might immerse yourself in a culture or in a subject for three or four weeks, and then you become familiar with it, and you're confident enough to put a solution together. That's the way we're taught in school, but that's not the way that Indigenous communities work. Um, sometimes it can take, you know, months or years to, to really understand mm. everything that's you know, should be driving a design. So we've had mixed results working with mainstream firms. We do a lot of that. Um, it's never been my intention to grow Tura Architect into anything more than a medium-sized firm. I've always kind of wanted to stay on the smaller side. But teaming up on consortiums with, with larger mainstream firms gives us an opportunity to work on some larger projects like the Anishinaabe Health Project up the street. And it gives us a chance, really. I mean, I shouldn't say this, but we also get to do the fun part, right? <laughs> we get to work on the schematic design and the design development, uh, which are the parts that you know you really enjoy the most. And then when it gets to the point where you're doing contract documents and field review, sometimes we pull back a little bit. I mean, we always want to stay involved from the beginning to the end, but we really rely on the mainstream firms to do a lot of the nuts and bolts work. And, and in a lot of cases, you know, they're they're closer to the projects. It's better for the clients if if they can take more of a leadership role in those phases of the work. As I, as I think about what you, you're saying about the fun part of it, um, it, it must be very satisfying, I would think, from your perspective in, in your line of work where you are doing these drawings and you're imagining what this is going to look like. And maybe it gets easier, of course, over time as you get more used to it, but it must be very fulfilling to, to see these things come to fruition. Yeah, I mean, I, I I really enjoy that part of it, the creative part. Um, it's it's the piece that we all like the best. Um, I'm, I've often told people that, you know, I've never worked a day in my life, right? I uh, <laughs> get to draw, you know, talk on the telephone, play with computers, <laughs> work the different software that's out there. Mm. Um, and it is really fulfilling. And the timing is, is kind of good too, right? Like, um, you know, a, a typical project... You might be in schematic design and design development for maybe, you know, six months to a year. And then it would go into contract documents. Maybe that's another six months. And then construction starts and maybe that takes a year or two. So there's kind of this three or four year cycle where you see projects start from an, an original idea, get built. And, and so it's, there's always something fresh coming along. Uh, and there's also always the reward of seeing something in the construction stage. So it is, it is pretty fulfilling. You mentioned schools earlier, and uh, I'm just wondering, are you, are you involved with schools in terms of up-and-coming uh, uh, students, or do you see much ha has changed in that regard? You kind of mentioned uh, something along that lines earlier. I don't have any formal connection to any particular school. Mm. 
with the new architecture school at Laurentian, they wanted to put a focus uh, with their curriculum on designing for the North and for Indigenous communities. Mm. And they've got a number of faculty there that are Indigenous. And the school is led by David Fortan, who's uh, Métis and a, and a good friend of mine. So they've had me up two or three times to do uh, student critiques and to present some of our uh, our research work. So there is a bit of a, a relationship starting to form there. But when I think about schools in general, there wasn't a lot of curriculum when I went through that talked about, you know, indigenous architecture. And I think I think we're starting to see kind of a change worldwide where there's more recognition of it, mm. um, the value of it. Mm. You know, if you look at some of the recent Pritzker Prize winners, which is kind of like the gold medal in architecture for, for this community, mm. and it's also kind of a, a you know lifetime. There's kind of a lifetime uh, achievement award associated with it. For a lot of decades, the award was being given to architects that were fairly and had a fairly high profile and were known for doing work that was maybe, you know, leading edge, mm. you know, the next big thing. But in the last three or four years, that award is starting to go to firms that are doing more kind of uh, grassroots projects, working in communities, uh, more of a focus on housing as opposed to some of these larger, you know, glorified institutions. Mm. So I think, I think there's kind of a, a change worldwide. And I think you're starting to see architecture schools in their curriculums are starting to incorporate more uh, work around, um, you know, sustainability, stewardship of the land. Mm-hmm. Um, I think generally the architecture profession is kind of moving a little bit closer to an indigenous uh, worldview, really. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Do you think that um, any of what the TRC has had to do, the Truth and Reconciliation, has had an impact on that? It feels different. I remember when uh, the Royal Commission came out, I really didn't notice much tangible change in um, the work that we were being offered or the client's reaction. But since Truth and Reconciliation, I would say for the last two years, there's been a real kind of palpable change where institutions are really wanting to kind of work together in a more um, sincere way. You know, I think there is some guilt with a lot of colleges and universities out there that they're named after indigenous groups, you know, Algonquin College, Mohawk College, Seneca College. Mm. So they've had to catch up, I I think, a little bit uh, in honoring, you know, their namesakes Mm. and also adopting, you know, some of those principles that really kind of help them to celebrate their natural histories. So I think they're, they're you know, they're kind of starting to become full circle, you know, or a place like Centennial College that's named after Canada's, you know, centennial anniversary. I think they're realizing they haven't done enough, you know, to represent Indigenous values. So they're they're working hard to catch up. Mm. Ryerson would be another one, mm. you know, where Egerton was one of the architects of the residential school system. Mm. So there's been a little bit of controversy there. Uh, we're doing some work with them right now, and I'm, I'm really excited about it. Um, a real change in people's attitudes. It just feels, uh, it just feels a lot better. Mm. This sounds like a good spot to take a pause, and we will be right back on Element FM.
All right, we're back on Moment of Truth and Element FM. Our guest is Brian Porter, and he is the principal at Turo Architect, based on Six Nations. He's been in the business about 25 years as a sole proprietor, and it's interesting to have an architect on the show because I think that's a very interesting uh, line of work to begin with. And as Hugh is saying, he says he hasn't really worked a day in his life. He's just been playing and working on designs and uh, computer software. Uh, Brian, how has that changed since you began in terms of the software? I mean, you probably mm. started out with, uh, you know, uh, um, drawing and uh, a desk and things, and now it's all gone to computer, I imagine. Yeah, I started out, like uh, most of my peers, drawing on the boards. Mm. I was lucky when I when I did take that position with the Ontario uh, Regional Office of Public Works, they were w- very far advanced. Uh, AutoCAD had just come out, which was a, a 2D software program, and they had a huge plotter up there that filled up a whole room that probably cost something like $600,000 or something <laughs> like that. Which is just crazy, but that's that's what the price of those things was at the time. Mm. So I was able to learn AutoCAD during my year at Public Works. You know, I was able to kind of take my time, uh, learn it reasonably well when a lot of my peers were still working on the boards, mm. and I got to put it into practice when I when I started with the firm in in Brantford. I, I kind of helped lead up that that division of work, you know, starting to put drawings on the computer. And there was a lot of, there was a lot of, uh, you know, people were reluctant, but I think they also knew that it was, you know, it was going to, it was going to take over. Mm. Since, since those 2D programs, now, of course, we're doing, you know, we're in our office for the last two or three years, we've been trying to switch over to Revit, which I think is short form for revise it, but what you're doing with a software program like that is you're not drawing in two dimensions anymore. You're actually entering pieces um, in three dimensions into a, a virtual model. Wow. So, you know, the way you, you know, you build your model up with walls and floors mm-hmm. and roofs and windows and doors. And, you know, if you want to generate a plan, you know, you cut a section through the model you know, four feet above the floor. Wow. It generates the model. If you want to cut a section, wow. you take a, a, a knife and you kind of cut through the model vertically and it generates all these drawings. Wow. And it's really great for um, coordinating with engineering mm. because you can see in three dimensions whether, you know, a duct, sure. for instance, is conflicting with a steel beam and the software kind of helps flag some of the uh, mm-hmm. the collisions yeah. that you wouldn't otherwise see if you were designing in two dimensions. So it's really been an exciting time to you know become an architect because I, I got to see I got to see the transition right, mm. and I think you'll start to see days when you know constructors are on job sites with tablets and they've yeah. got access to the model. Right. So it, it should really start to. Uh, Start to pay dividends across the board. You just made me think of something uh, in in terms of um, augmented reality and being mentioning a tablet where you could be able to be able to hold up the tablet to the site you're working on and be able to see those things uh, what they're supposed to look like. And, yeah, uh, yeah, that's pretty. <laughs> I mean, part of the challenge is that, of course, is you can't you can't uh, 
BS your way through a client anymore, right? <laughs> you, you can't say, trust me, it's going to look good because they can pop on some virtual 3D glasses and walk through you know, a full-scale model of your building. So it, it takes away from that. So you have to be, you have to be good. <laughs> so speaking of the future, do you see uh, do you see a change with upcoming Indigenous uh, students that are getting more involved with this line of work? I, th- I think so. I mean, I think it's a natural fit for us, right? Because mm. you know we've always been good builders, uh, and we've always been interested in the arts. Mm. And there's you know we've always held things like sustainability and stewardship in high regard you know, planning for the seventh generation. Mm-hmm. So I think there's kind of a natural fit there. And then um, with some of the schools, you know, looking to try to recruit kids out of high school, there's a lot more activity there than there was when I was coming up through. Mm. So I think I think we'll start to see the numbers increase. And I remember when I was, when I was coming up in high school, there were really no role models at the time. I didn't know who Douglas Cardinal was. Mm. I think he got licensed in 1961, somewhere around there. I knew a little bit about some of his work in uh, with the Red Deer Church and some other projects, but there really was no one out there that um, you know I saw as uh, any kind of mentor. Mm. But now I think with mentors out there like uh, David Fortan, Patrick Stewart, Alfred Waugh, Matthew Hickey, a Lady of Smoke, um, Jake Kakasm. There's a lot more of us. You know, words kind of getting out, I think. You know, there are some of us are in British Columbia. Some of us are based out of Winnipeg, like uh, Ryan Gorey and uh, David Thomas. Wanda De La Costa is out in Arizona. So it's just, uh, I think the profession is a lot more accessible. It's more accessible than it ever was. So I think you'll start to see a lot more kids pursue this kind of a career. Mm. Speaking of uh, uh, projects and and career, do you have a favorite uh, project that you worked on in your career? Something that you're very proud of, or or something you think of as as something you you you, you know was it made a statement for you? Or I think um, the Indigenous Student Center that we just finished at Seneca College was a great success. Mm. We did that in association with a firm from Toronto called Gawa Hastings. Um, it just got opened in um, September, so I can't remember what the budget was. It might have been eight or nine hundred thousand dollars, but with that money, we uh, were able to renovate an existing classroom into offices, and also construct a fairly sizable addition. So it's become home to the Indigenous students there. Mm. And I think it's probably one of the most sought-after meeting rooms mm. on the on the college campus now. Um, we were able to incorporate some dimensional wood. It's got a fairly interesting roof that we were able to kind of incorporate a bit of a wampum kind of motif into it using bent metal shingles. And we worked in close association with the faculty there. Peggy Pitawanaquat was really supportive so it was we had a great kind of relationship with with the college and with the firm from toronto um gal hastings you know we really kind of worked well together meshed on that job it really felt like there was a lot of synergy there and i think azure magazine picked that building as one of the top 
10 projects in Canada for the 2018 calendar year. Mm. So we got a little bit of um, publicity from it as well. Mm. Awesome. But, but mostly, I mean, I think the students love it. That's the real kind of, mm. that's the real reward. Right. Well, congratulations on that. Anything coming up for you that you're excited about? Well, I'm, I'm really looking forward to Anishinaabe Health getting into the construction phase. I'm not sure how far we are away there yet. We're working with the Ministry of Health. Sometimes those schedules can get a little bit um, prolonged. But we're also working um, on the, uh, with the Shingwak Education Trust in Sault Ste. Marie. Uh, this summer, I'm expecting the, their Anishinaabek uh, Discovery Center to get completed. It's about 80% constructed now. Um, and what they're trying to do with that facility is it's, it's kind of like library and archive, but also has some classrooms in it. But they're trying to attract uh, the National Chief's Library to be re- relocated mm. into that facility. So that'll be nice to have a proper place mm. to, to uh, archive those documents. I mean, I think a lot of them right now are probably in storage in Ottawa, mm. but you know, it'll be a kind of a real symbol of where our culture lies, I mm. think. I mean, we need to build up some of those institutions, I think. So I'm excited about that one. Those would be two that sort of come to mind right off the right. top. Right. Well, all the best in the future. You know, as you were speaking and you mentioned culture, I thought of something, and I, I don't know if you're involved with this, don't know if you know anything about it, but I, I was thinking of the Mohawk uh, Institute that's being the historical building that it, they've gutted and they're, they're sort of trying to get that back to its original uh, state. Do you know much about that at all? I know a little bit about the project. Um, and that one's always been, a, that's been tough for me, right? Like um, we were involved with some visioning sessions with the board this is years back. This is probably like 10 or 15 years ago, you know, where we're really trying to sort of scratching our head to figure out what the most appropriate use for that building would be. And I think now they finally, um, you know, they've come to the decision that they want to turn it into a, a museum. Mm. I know one of the candidate ideas at the time, 15 years ago, was to blow it up, right? <laughs> yeah. And there was yeah. a piece of me that thought that that might be very, very cathartic. You know, we could have had a, a lottery. All of the uh, residential school survivors in Canada would get a ballot, you know, and uh, the lucky one would be able to sort of <laughs> push the plunger. But uh, I guess cooler heads prevailed and they decided it's better to keep mm. keep that facility there as a mm. reminder so that those types of things don't happen again. Mm. Save the evidence, I guess. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, was a piece of me that was pushing for the uh was pushing to blow it up but i guess to restore something like that that, that's that's that was another part of the problem with it if you look at that uh, that the current structure it's been modified probably four or five times from what it looked like when it was functioning as a residential school and some of the stuff has been pretty well documented so if you've been involved in any kind of heritage project before um, I mean, typically they would want to try to reinstate what it was when it was functioning. Some of the windows have been relocated. The porch detailing has all been redone. Mm. So they got the information if they wanted to reinstate it back to what it was like, you know, maybe back in the like the 1940s or 1930s, they could do it, but it would it would it would be very very expensive. Um, so those are some of the challenges that you kind of run into with heritage buildings all mm. the time. Mm. 
Well, Brian, any any uh, last words just before we go? It's, it's nice to be sitting here on the beach with you, <laughs> looking out over the water. Um, you know, I can't wait till, you know, this Anishinaabe Health Building will be one of the first kind of purpose-built buildings uh, that we've seen in kind of a, a Canadian city. And I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I don't understand why there's not a little bit more of that happening mm. um, where, you know, I th- you know I'm, I'm waiting for the day when, you know, places like um, Ottawa, Toronto, Winnipeg, Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary, where they start to see the value of really celebrating, you know, the natural history of, of, of their lands and their places. And where they, when they start to understand that, um, you know, there's economic benefit to some of this too, right? It's just, it's, I don't understand why it's not happening more often. I mean, if I'm an international traveler and I want to visit places mm-hmm. in Canada, you know, that's the first thing that I want to see. So I'll be glad when we get, you know, a few of these things built and up and running so that we can all celebrate, have a little bit more fun together. Well, Brian, uh, again, Yawa, for coming in today. Really appreciate your time and, and sharing uh, those thoughts with us and, and your projects. All the best in the future. We yep. wish you all the best. Thanks, so, David. Uh, Yawa, once again for coming in. Brian Porter is uh, from Two Row Architect, which is based on Six Nations.